appreciate you. Wow. It's great being here. I am so thankful to get to meet you guys. And I want to thank you, Mark and Gwen and Pastor Gerald, for having us this morning. It's exciting to me. There's some stuff that God's been putting on my heart for months to share. And I think that this is an opportunity that he's opened up to share with you. And it sounds exactly in line with what God has been doing here. The harvest is very ripe, and we're going to get to that in a minute. God is going to use us, I believe, more than any generation in history. I want to thank my dad. My dad has been an example of evangelism since I was a little boy. You guys don't know this, but my dad has actually been imprisoned here in America for sharing his faith. You should ask him about that story in Las Vegas. But my dad has been one of the most bold evangelists that I've ever known in my life. And we saw that growing up. He would go in bars and share Christ with people as they were drinking and, and talk about fruit that remains. We, we know a pastor that's been a pastor for 29 years now that my dad shared Christ with in a bar when he was drinking. And that night he went home and trusted Christ. And that's all to God's glory, not to my dad's glory. But I want to publicly just say thank you, Dad, for modeling that for us. Uh, There's no way that we would be in ministry had we not seen that in you and Mom. And so thank you for that. And thank you, Dave, too. My brother Dave just got back from Bible school, and he's, he's sharing his faith all the time. Yesterday we're driving past this beggar. We're on the highway, and this guy has a, a sign that says, Hungry. I didn't even catch it. I didn't even see the sign. Dave goes, do, do a U-turn. We've got to go buy that guy some food. So anyway, Dave is just a great, great example to me of evangelism. So as we start here, guys, bear with me. I will go kind of hard and fast. <laughs> I will share a lot of scripture. I think that that's going to be more important than any of my opinions. So stay with me. If you guys are comfortable taking notes, or if you usually do, don't try to take notes on every single verse or reference or whatever, I want you to take notes on what God lays on your heart. If there's a point that really sticks out to you, write that down, because that's between you and God. How many of you guys believe that the greatest revival in the history of the world is imminent? Yes. You believe that? Yes. The greatest revival in the history of the world is imminent. Now, I want to leave you with that thought, and this is going to make sense later. How many of you guys could use some extra cash? Here's $20 for the first person that comes up and takes it. Oh, you're on it. What's your name again? I know, I met you. What's your name? Ben. Ben. Okay, thank you, Ben. Okay, that'll make sense in a minute. But how many of you guys, again, expect to see the greatest revival in the history of the world in your lifetime? Yes. Yes, I do too. And I think that God has called us to this unique time in history. In August of 1944, the Allies had nearly surrounded the German 7th and 5th Panzer armies. They surrounded them except for a 25-mile hole. They had the opportunity to wipe out most of the German army. This is very shortly after Normandy. This is early in the war where they could have dealt a decisive victory to Hitler and, and gone very far in a very short amount of time. General Bradley described the situation saying, quote, This is an opportunity that comes to a commander not more than once in a century. We're about to destroy an entire hostile army and go all the way from here to the German border. Unfortunately, shortly after that time, Bradley got cold feet. He began to let fear build in him. He began to think, I don't know if we have what it takes to annihilate this entire army if we do close that gap. And Patton is coming up, and General Patton begins to close that gap to surround these German forces. And Bradley actually ordered him to return back to where he'd come from. 
Not even to keep his ground, but return back. This was during Operation Cobra. And on the other side was Field Marshal Montgomery commanding the Canadian forces, and he stopped the Canadian forces there and didn't close the gap. So they left this gap open. Over the next 10 days, between 100 and 240,000 German troops escaped through that 25-mile section, including 30,000 vehicles. And they finally closed it on August 21st of 1944. And they killed 15,000 soldiers and took 50,000 captive in that short amount of time. Okay? But see, a huge opportunity was missed because they let fear stop them. Does that make sense? They let fear build up. And in fact, H.R. McAllister, a colonel with the Army, put it this way, Patton was biased always towards seeing opportunities. Other commanders were biased towards seeing the danger. And I think that applies to us as believers in these end times, in the end time harvest. Are we going to be biased towards seeing opportunities, or are we going to be biased towards seeing the dangers? Because there are things God's going to call you to that are going to be dangerous, and they're not going to be comfortable. And you can be biased towards seeing the danger and saying, I'm not going to take that step of faith. Or you can be biased towards seeing the opportunity and trusting God who can do much more than you expect. And that's what I want to start with, guys, is if revival is imminent, we need to change our thinking. We need to start being biased towards seeing the opportunities that God is bringing up around us every single day. So what is revival? Guys, what is revival? We have a lot of misconceptions about revival. I spent most of my life thinking that revival was like a Christian carnival. And it would come to town and be really exciting, and everybody get really psyched up, and then it would go to another town. And when it wasn't in my town, I always prayed that it would come to my town, but it never came to my town. And God had to get a hold of me and say, that's not what revival is. Revival is a sustained and unhindered work of God that results in true repentance, transforming believers and saving the lost. Does that make sense? See, it starts with believers because God can't revive somebody that's dead. You have to be alive first, right? And, and in John 5, it talks about being brought from death to life. That was each one of us. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, it says that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive in Christ Jesus. Now, for all of us who have been made alive in Christ, God is, is choosing and desiring to revive us. Is that right? But he can't revive a dead person yet. So revival has to start with believers. But it doesn't end there. Because a believer that is on fire is going to multiply and is going to see other people around him coming to know the Lord. We can't help but see that happen. So revival doesn't end with believers being transformed, but it ends with that resulting in non-believers coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and themselves becoming radical followers of Jesus Christ. See, that's why 1 Peter 4.17 says that judgment begins with the house of God. Because it has to start here in my heart first, right? I have to get on the same page with God and realize what He's doing, and make the decision that I'm going to be a part of what He's doing. That I'm going to go in the direction that He's going. See, Psalm 80.18 said, revive us and we will call on your name. Psalm 85.6 revive us and we will rejoice in you. God desires to revive each one of us and to do a work in our lives that's going to result in people around us coming to know him. So that's revival. A sustained and unhindered work of God. A sustained and unhindered work of God resulting in true repentance. A change of thinking. I'm not saying in being perfect, okay? But I'm saying it's resulting in me deciding to think on the same lines with Jesus Christ. And that resulting in transformed believers and the lost being saved. That's what he desires to do. So as we return to the Lordship of Christ, that's what we are going to see. I believe we'll see the entire world coming back to him. And see, for the first time in history, we are mathematically and logistically at a point 
where we can see world revival. There's transportation possibilities that never existed in history. Communication. I can pull out my cell phone. I have, I have a friend that's a missionary in, in East Asia, in a closed country. I can dial him on speed dial right now and we can talk. Okay, I have friends in, in Romania. Same way, we can call and talk. Moldova. See, we have communication technologies they never had before. You have Facebook. Guys, every day, thousands of people are trusting Christ online. It's unbelievable. There are capabilities now that never existed in the past. And see, this opportunity is huge. It's just like, I believe, where the Allies were. This is a once-in-a-lifetime situation. And we cannot be biased towards seeing the dangers. We have to be biased towards seeing the opportunity that God has put right in our laps. Now, I want to read you a verse, and you can turn there with me. I'll kind of quote most of the verses or share them here today. But turn to this one with me. It's Romans 10, 14 through 15. I'll give you a second to get there. Marvin Bittinger is a mathematician with Purdue University. He's written over 100 math textbooks that are used in colleges across the nation. And he recently wrote a book called The Faith Equation. And in that book, he said that if evangelism and missionary trends continue as they are going right now, by 2033, every human being alive will have been exposed to the gospel. We get to live in that time. We get to live in that time. By 2025, Woodcliffe is going to have a Bible translation project started in every language on the planet. We get to live in that time when for the first time in history, every human being will be able to read God's word in their native tongue. This is an amazing time, guys. So are you guys at Romans 10, 14 through 15? Okay, read with me. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So, what is this saying here? What has to happen before people can come to Christ? Somebody has to be sent to them. Somebody has to preach to them. Okay, so what is holding back, guys? What is holding back? Why isn't revival happening? When you think about that verse, why isn't revival happening? I want you to think about this, because I think we as the body of Christ believe a huge lie. And it affects us in a big way. And if you've never believed this lie, good for you. I have. And I want to hit it hard, guys. But here's the deal. Is God withholding? Is God withholding revival from us? Is God saying, you know, today I don't want to see people saved. (laughs) Today I don't want to see believers turning back to me. Is God withholding revival? See, 2 Peter 3.9 says that he doesn't want any to perish. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that he wants every single human being to be saved. John 12.32-33, Jesus says, If I be lifted up, I will draw every man unto myself. And And it said that in verse 33, Concerning the manner of death by which he would die, being crucified on a cross, he was lifted up on a cross. That's not saying if we glorify Christ, he'll draw every man to himself. That's saying he was already crucified. Every single man, he's tugging their hearts. Is he doing that right now? Yeah. I want to ask you a question. Is every single one of your neighbors being drawn to Christ right now? Is every one of your co-workers being drawn to Christ right now? Was Jesus lying when he said in Matthew 9.37 that the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few? He wasn't, right? The harvest is truly ripe, guys. This is the end-time harvest. And the harvest is ripe. God does not withhold revival. But we as believers can choose to be disobedient to our call. We can choose not to be a part of the revival that he's called us to. And see, I always believe this lie that, man, I sure hope that revival gets here. And I think lately God's been changing my heart to realize, be the revival. Okay? 
God's doing something in each of our hearts, and that's supposed to spread. So revival doesn't come because I sit around waiting for revival to come. Does that make sense? Revival doesn't come because God goes, I don't feel like it today. That's not his heart. That's not where he's at. He desires each one of us to have an intimate relationship with him. Intimate fellowship with him. Right? And so that revival... It sounds weird, but it depends more on me than on God, in a sense. I mean, He's the power, He's the impetus, He's the energy behind it, He's the truth, but He's called me to be His hands and feet here and now. He's called me to step out in faith here and now. And until I do it, I'm not going to see what He's called me to be a part of. So it's not that God withholds revival, but it's that I don't catalyze revival. Does that make sense? And see, I think that this is an encouragement to us as the body to start being revival catalysts. To start walking on what God's called us to and letting that spread to the people around us, to our neighborhoods, to our jobs, to our workplaces, to our schools. What if all those places became radically changed by Jesus Christ. He can do it, right? He can do it. So revival doesn't happen because too many of us are sitting around waiting for revival to happen instead of being the revival. If one person leads ten people to Christ, we call that really neat. That's exciting. That's neat stuff. When Mark tells me about people coming to Christ, I get excited. makes me want to share more on campus. But you guys, what if a thousand people led ten people to Christ? We, We might call that revival, right? The only difference is that 999 people decided to become obedient to the call and to be the revival. That's the difference right there. Revival is happening worldwide. I want you guys to get this. I don't want you to think, man, not much is happening, because I as a believer can believe that. You guys know that today 34,000 people are going to trust Christ in South America. 34,000 people in South America alone. In China today, between 28 and 37,000 people are going to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Every single day. Right? In Africa, 23 to 25,000 people a day are coming to Christ. In the Muslim world. The Muslim world. How many of us have believed the lie that the Muslim world is closed? I've been there and I've talked to Muslims and they're as hungry for Christ as any human being I've ever met. And honestly, guys, every single day, 16,000 Muslims are trusting Christ. 16,000 Muslims are trusting Christ every single day. Worldwide, 174,000 people a day put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's well over a million people a week. Is that, is that revival? Is God moving? Yeah. But what's happening here in America? The body of believers is shrinking daily in our country. People hypothesize that within one generation there will be 3 or 4%, we were talking about this last night, 3 or 4% believers in our country. This is the battlefront that God put you in. God did not choose to put you in Saudi Arabia. He chose to put you in Montrose. There's a reason for that. See, we're missing what God wants to do here in our country. And we're the ones He chose to put here in this country. And He did that for a reason. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You, every single one of you. In in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're told that we're ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador relays a message to another party on behalf of their king. See, Jesus has said, I'm going to use you, Ben, to be my ambassador to the people around you. Jesus gave us what I call the third greatest commandment, the Great Commission. We call it the third greatest commandment because it's the fulfillment of the first greatest commandment. If I love Christ, then I'm going to be obedient to the Great Commission. And it's also a fulfillment of the second greatest commandment, to love my neighbor as myself. Because if I truly love my neighbor, like my brother was praying this morning, then I'm going to share Christ with them, right? 
So it's the third greatest commandment, but it's a fulfillment of the first two. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18-20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That was Christ's command to each one of us. And that is what he's calling us to be a part of. That's revival. Making disciples of all nations, of all people. We can easily come to this place of saying, Well, God, I know you called me to make disciples of all nations, but my co-workers don't want to hear the gospel. How many of you guys have ever believed that lie? I have. Okay. How many of us have really had that unbelief? Our unbelief is big. I mean, I have it every single day. right? And I'm reminded of the story of the father in Mark 9. With the demon-possessed boy. He said, Jesus, heal my boy. And he said, you believe. And he said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. That's what I want my prayer to be. God, help me with my unbelief. I don't want to see the harvest as depleted. I want to see the harvest as being ripe. I want to look at my workplace and see hunger for Jesus and thirst for Jesus. I want to look at Western Europe. You know, Christians say Western Europe is so dead. And I think Western Europe hasn't had a drink of spiritual water for a few generations. I don't think they could be thirstier. I want to look at places that don't look like God is moving and realize they are right for revival. They are right for God to move. Were you ever satisfied aside from Christ? Could they be? Do Mercedes Benzes make people satisfied in Germany? They're hungry for Jesus, just like you are and just like I am. See, I've come to a point where I desire to live a life of evangelism and discipleship. I want to confess not sharing with the people around me as sin. When I don't share with them, I want to go to God and say, God, forgive me for not sharing. And I want to realize that He can help me with my unbelief. I want to see Him as my commanding officer, like it talks about in 2 Timothy 2, 3-4. And it says that a soldier doesn't get entangled in the affairs of this life because they want to please their commanding officer. I want to be focused not on preserving office politics and keeping the boat from rocking. That's the affairs of this life. Instead, I want to be Realizing the opportunities that God brings up around me. So the people around you are desperately hungry for Jesus. He said it. He said the harvest is ripe. Is that right? He said that he's drawing every man unto himself. Is that right? They're hungry. They're hungry. Guys, the hotter the desert, the thirstier people are going to be. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Moral depravity that you see all around you is just evidence that they're searching more than anybody before them was willing to go. I look at college students and I see... Sexual experimentation, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, relational absurdities that you would never even believe here. And people can look at that and say, man, they're so far from God. And and we choose to say, no, they're searching desperately. And they're going further than previous college students went because they are that much emptier inside. And eventually that emptiness is going to drive them either to suicide or to Jesus Christ. Because nothing else satisfies. Only He does. Guys, when we look around the world and we see things going down the tubes, it's evidence to me that this generation needs Jesus. And if we will be the revival, we're going to see the greatest revival in the history of the world. I don't want to miss the opportunity that God is putting around us. See, we're being lied to. Okay, we're being lied to. Remember that the 12 spies, Numbers 13, Moses sends out the 12 spies to spy out the land that God had already promised to them. And what happened? Ten of those spies came back and said, we can't take it. They're, they're too powerful. How many of us have believed that about the nation God put us in? Oh my gosh. 
I can't, I hate, I hate this, I hate that, or I don't like what happened in the last election. Gosh, God can't do anything now. I mean, we've got to get over this mentality and realize this country, God is working. He is setting things up for massive revival. But you guys, are we going to be a part of it or not? See, we're believing the ten spies, aren't we? Too often we believe the ten spies, that the enemy is too powerful, that Satan has won our nation. And we kind of, we kind of give up because of the report of the ten spies. And God is saying, no, listen to Joshua and Caleb. Listen to the truth. I put you here for a time. I want to mention some of these lies that we typically believe. There are ten cultural Christian lies. I think these are ten main ones. If you want to take notes, this could be good. You must have the gift of evangelism to share your faith. How many of us have heard that? People ask me that sometimes. And I say, well, if I don't have the gift of hospitality, should I, should I not show hospitality? If I don't have the gift of giving, should I not give? <laughs> if I don't have the gift of encouragement, should I not encourage? See, some people are going to be gifted with evangelism. My dad's a great example, I believe. But other people are also called to share their faith, right? And that's a joy to be able to trust God in something I might not be so great at. I get to step out in faith that much more. So don't believe the lie that you have to have a gift before you can share. Don't believe the lie that only young people come to Christ. I've heard that so many times. Old people have made up their minds. No, it'll never change. I've seen people recently, older, professional, very wealthy people that are coming to Christ. Because they're realizing that everything else leaves them empty. Okay, don't believe the lie that you have to be friends first. How many times did Jesus befriend somebody before he shared with them? Not very often. How long would it take for you to befriend everybody in Montrose in order to reach Montrose? It's not going to happen. See, there have been times where we've shared with somebody boldly and they've come to Christ then and there. Or maybe a week later. Okay? We didn't become friends beforehand, but we sure became friends afterwards. Don't believe the lie that you have to validate the gospel. Or that you being relevant makes the gospel work. We believe this lie. Man, young people aren't going to like how nice I dress. I better, you know, put on a bolt-on shirt so that I can be relevant to the young people. That's absurd. Guys, Jesus is relevant to every human being. I am just a mouthpiece. It doesn't matter what I'm wearing today, where I live. He's relevant, not me. Okay? You have to earn the right to be heard. How many of you have heard that? got to earn the right to be heard. Jesus earned the right to be heard 2,000 years ago. Okay? How many of you guys have heard that good works are evangelism? Buying that guy a sandwich yesterday, that's evangelism. No. It's a very good thing to do. <laughs> Something we're called to do. But that's not evangelism. It's a different thing. See, Dave also shared Christ with that man yesterday. Just buying a homeless guy lunch is not the same as sharing my faith. Words aren't necessary. Have you heard that? Just live a good Christian life. The quote goes something along the lines of preach, always use words if necessary. Well, we should live a godly lifestyle, guys, but words are necessary. We're commanded to preach the word in season and out of season. Okay, the gospel is unattractive and repulsive. How many people have believed the lie that people do not want to hear about sin and salvation? They will be offended. They won't like it. Romans 1.16 tells me the gospel is the power of God. I've talked to people that tell me, before I was a believer, I heard scripture and I couldn't sleep at night because it hit me so hard. We debated these campus atheists last year. And one of them tells me the next day, I said, hey, what would you think last night after, after the debate? There were like 130 students that came to see this. We called it a forum, not necessarily a debate where we could go back and forth. He tells me, I didn't sleep last night. I just sat up thinking about everything you guys said. 
And as a side note, the Atheist Club is dissolved on our campus. <laughs> this week they wanted to do a last stand, to do one last debate, one last forum. But that guy, interestingly, won't have anything to do with it. The gospel is not repulsive. It's the power of God unto salvation, and I need to believe that. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Have you heard that one? They need to know how much we care. We need to show them that, guys. But more important than that is Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers. Okay, now here's the tenth one. God doesn't want us to offend anyone. We just need to be nice and as kind and happy as we can and smile real big and make them think that all Christians are are the happiest people alive. No, Jesus said in John 15 that the world will hate us. Okay, he promised us that. And in 2 Corinthians 2.16, it says that some were the aroma of death, were the smell of death, to others the fragrance of life. And see, I need to be okay with sometimes not being liked. I need to be okay with sometimes realizing people might not like it when I point to Jesus. But that's okay, because they treated him even worse. And I want to be the light that he called me to be. The good news is good news, guys. So I don't want to believe those lies. I want to confront them head on in the society and say, I'm going to be the revival. I'm not going to quelch the revival by believing and living those lies. So we've been disobedient to the third greatest commandment. Guys, if I don't have a heart for the lost, I don't have a heart for God. That is the conviction that I gain more and more. If God is in my life, and if his purpose on this planet was to seek and to save the lost, then as my heart for him grows, my heart for other people is going to grow too. And my heart for people that don't yet know him is going to grow too. And I'm going to get to a point, and I I pray that God gets me there, where I'm more and more and more passionate about seeing people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Right? That follows out of a heart for God. There's no other way I can get it. Guys, there are reasons we don't share pride, fear, doubt. I want to make a note about doubt. Don't talk yourself out of hope. Talk yourself out of hopelessness. Okay, pride, fear, doubt, being, being defeated by sin. We have people say, look, I, you know, I, I haven't got over that one issue of sin, so how can I share my faith? We want to say, you know what? Trust Him. Preach the Word. Trust Him with your sin. Trust Him with preaching the Word. But don't stop because you haven't become perfect. Because you never will be. Don't be focused on the temporary. Be focused on the eternal. And we have to die to ourselves. Jesus said in in Luke 9, 23-24. Right? Okay, A.W. Tozer puts it this way. In every Christian's heart there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of all the backsliding and worldliness among believers today. We want to be saved, but insist Christ do all the dying. We doom ourselves to shadows, weakness, and spiritual sterility. As I choose to let Christ dwell in me, and I choose to let Him be on the throne and not myself, I will find myself being the revival to the world that He's put me in. Okay? Now, don't bury your talent, guys. Don't hide your light. Revival starts here and now. Acts 17, 26-27. From one man, He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men might seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. So he says he determined the exact time and place that you should live. So are you in Montrose as an accident? No. There's a reason for you being here. And he determined the time and the place for you to live. And why did he do that, does he say in verse 27? So that men might seek him and perhaps find him and reach out for him. Okay, So you're here specifically so that the people around you will find God. 
Second, see, he's called you to be the revival to the city that you're in. He strategically placed you here for a reason. And you can win it. As a body, guys, we need to be more focused on testimonies than attendance. I need to be more interested in what God's doing in people's lives than packing. Sometimes in our meetings, you know, this year we've had 85 students. And that really appeals to me. I love it. Oh my gosh, 85 students. This is great. And then we've had weeks where we had 35. You know, and my flesh is kind of like... I don't like that so much. But you know what? Those weeks people have gotten saved. Those weeks believers have grown in their faith. I need to be less concerned with the attendance and much more concerned with testimonies. What is God doing in people's lives? I need to be committed to multiplying spiritual multipliers. And as individuals, guys, 2 Corinthians 5 tells me that our love for God will compel us to share the gospel. See, we need to get back to that place of intimacy with Christ. Because out of that, we become the people that God wants us to be to reach this city. See, I have nothing to offer Montrose. Montrose doesn't need more of Nate Hurst. Durango's struggling to survive with it as it is. I'm not the answer. Jesus is the answer. Okay, guys? And see, as I connect with him, he lives through me. Galatians 2.20. He empowers me to be his witness to this city. I need to pray. How many revivals have started without prayer? Zero. Right? The divine order. Talk to God about people and then talk to people about God. That's the divine order we tell our students. But it's true. I need to be on my knees interceding for the people, for the harvest that God's put around me. See, prayer also makes me who I need to be for the revival. Right? As I seek God's face in prayer, I become the person that He can use. But until I'm at that point of seeking Him daily, I'm not going to be who He can use. I'm just me. And that's not much. Okay? And then pray for opportunities. Ask God to open doors for you to share your faith. And then watch how exciting your life will get real quick. Okay? Invest your time, talent, and treasure in the battle. And here's a big one. Take steps of faith, big risks for God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And trust results to God. I tell my students all the time, get yourself into a situation where if God doesn't show up, you're dead. Get yourself into a situation where if God doesn't show up, you're dead. And that's the deal. As I'm taking those steps of faith, it's going to be a little scary. Right? Our our director always says, if faith had a feeling, it would probably be fear. (laughs) If you're taking steps of faith, there are going to be situations and things where you're going, oh, God, you better show up, otherwise I'm going to look foolish. Last year with this ranch, we put it to our board, and our board said, go for it, trust God for the million dollars. And driving home that night, I told Dave, not my brother Dave, a different Dave, I said, Dave, (laughs) I feel really scared right now. He says, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, I think it's my pride. I said, I, I think I'm scared that what if this money doesn't come in and what are people going to think about us then? That we're a bunch of nutcases trying to raise a million dollars in the worst recession since the Great Depression? My pride was causing me to have some fear about that step. But see, if faith had a feeling, it would probably be feared. Because it's going to start crushing some of that pride. And thank God it's bigger. And you're going to trust me, not that fear. Okay? And I want to encourage you guys, grow your faith. Grow your faith, guys. See, Romans 12, 3 says God's given you a measure of faith. And I can't think of any scripture that says God's going to give you more faith. Now, here's the deal. Faith like a mustard seed can move mountains, so whatever measure God gave you, that's good. <laughs> okay? But in 2 Corinthians ten fifteen, Paul talks about growing your faith. See, I get to grow the faith God's given me. It's like muscles. If I want to get stronger, I don't go and graft new muscles to get buffer. Manuel, you look like you could beat me on wrestling. The way I get stronger is by hitting that gym. 
and building and growing the muscles that God gave me. And it's the same with our faith. Faith doesn't grow in a vacuum. Faith doesn't grow in a living room. Faith grows by taking steps of faith. Trusting God for something that yesterday I wouldn't have trusted Him for. And then, as He comes through, and then I trust Him tomorrow, and then He comes through again, and I trust Him tomorrow, and He comes through again, and I trust Him tomorrow, and He comes through again, my faith starts to grow. Right? If God puts something in our lap next year where He says raise a million dollars, I'm going to have a different perspective on that than I did last year. Right? Because God came through and we saw Him. And He proved Himself faithful. And He grew our faith in the process. That's why James 2.22 talks about our faith being made complete. See, the faith that He's given us requires that it be worked out and made complete. Trusting God continually. So here's the deal, guys. Get ourselves into situations where if God doesn't show up, we're in big trouble. Xerxes, one of the greatest warriors in history, said, Only by great risks can great results be achieved. Only by great risks can great results be achieved. Now here it is. Love people into the kingdom, but also boldly share them into the kingdom. Proverbs 28.1 says, The righteous are as bold as a lion. Ephesians 6.20 and Colossians 4. Paul said, Pray that I would share the gospel boldly, clearly, and fearlessly. You guys can pray that for us anytime you want, Joe. Also, 2 Corinthians 3 says that our hope is going to give us boldness in speech. Because we know the hope that God has given us. And we can be bold about that. Remember what happened in Acts 4 when Peter and John were about to get in serious trouble with the authorities? And they said, quit preaching about Jesus. And what did they say? We can't help speaking. Right? We can't help speaking. I want that same boldness for my life to be on the line. And I'm going to go, I'm not shutting up. You can kill me, but that's about the only way you're going to get me to shut up. I want to get there, guys. But it's going to take taking some steps of faith to get there. It's going to take a little bit of a process to get there. So make a personal goal. Dave and I talk about this a lot. Don't make a covenant between you and God. Don't say, God, I will share my faith ten times a day until the day I die. Right? Don't put yourself under bondage. Okay? But make a personal goal that you want to be increasing in sharing your faith. I'm going to try to get into a conversation every day about Christ. Jim Elliott said, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. That's who I want to be. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. I heard a great message about this at a conference a few years ago. The guy says, what, what's one thing that sticks out about the sower? And everybody's thrown out. He was good. He did his job. Man. The guy goes, no, here's, here's the, the thing. Because the sower was a moron. <laughs> I went, what? Because the sower was a moron. Who sows on rocks? Who throws seed on roads? Who, who throws seed in thorns? All right? and, and he put it this way. He said, we're called to be seed chuckers, not soil specialists. And I think that's true. I need to get to a point where I can look at somebody that's a hardened atheist and say, I'm going to throw some seed. I'm not going to look at that hard road and say, no, impossible. I want to get to be a seed chucker, planting seed wherever God has called me. But here's the deal. It's been said that there are three types of people. People that make things happen, people that watch things happen, and people that ask what happened. So we want to be the people that make things happen, right? And here's an example of how we can do that. What did it take, Ben, for you to get that $20? Yeah, if you sat in that chair, you weren't going to get it. What's your name? Lucretia would have beat you to it. She would have got it (laughs) if you sat in that chair. See, God is holding out this call to be a part of the greatest revival in history. And it's not going to happen if I just sit there. It's going to happen when I take the initiative to step up and say, God, I'm on the same page with you. I'm going to be a part of what you're calling me to. So I want to give you guys a specific action plan 
for seeing a revival catalyzed in your city. So here is the ACTION acronym. ACTION. A. Acknowledge God's call. We need to get to a point where we say, God, the world's wrong. I'm not leaving the ten spies. You've given us this harvest, and I'm going to be a part of it. So acknowledge the call. Connect with God. If I'm not connecting with God, I will not be able to be the revival that he's called me to be in this city. I need to connect with him and be empowered by his Holy Spirit. So that Christ can truly live his life through me. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. So, acknowledge the call, connect with God, train yourself and others for the battle. Be committed to growing and training on your own. And then get other people alongside you. Help other people grow. Help other people get ready for the fight. Get ready for the battle. So, acknowledge God's will, connect with God, train yourself and others, intercede intentionally and specifically. Would be I intercede. Guys, don't you want to grow a heart for prayer? Don't you want to have a heart for prayer? To have God's heart for the lost and and for the community that he's put me in? So intercede. Then O, outreach through your sphere of influence. Share Christ with those in your sphere of influence. God put you there, not me. Because he thought you were the better person to be there than me. Does that make sense? There's a reason for him putting you there. And then finally, N, network with other believers that are doing the same. That means being committed to fellowship here in this body, right here. But it also means, you guys as a body, there might be some other Christians in this city that want to be the revival that God's called them to be. And you guys might not agree 100% on every single issue, but as brothers in Christ, you can network together and see God win this battle. So, acknowledge God's call, connect with God, train yourself and others, intercede intentionally and specifically, outreach in your sphere of influence, and network with other believers. Ultimately, 1 Corinthians 3.9, we're called to be co-laborers with God, guys. We're called to be co-laborers with God. And here's a hardcore challenge, and take this in grace. This is in the Old Testament, they weren't walking in grace, but in Judges 5.23, it says, Curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord to help the Lord against the mighty. See, God's called me to be a co-laborer. And that same level of of God's wrath does not apply to you as a believer today. But I I think it shows me a little bit of God's heart and His desire for us to be co-laboring with Him and to be helping Him. That is His heart for the lost. How many people am I going to have to apologize as they walk into an eternity in hell? Sometimes that grips me, guys. Sometimes I think about the many people that I chose not to share with. And I remember him. I remember in college, I was running to an organic chemistry test. And a lady said, why are you so happy in the morning? I said, I don't know, I guess I just am. Took off, better get to my O-chem test. I'm not even using chemistry now. It's not even part of my life. But man, probably till the day I die, I'm going to regret not telling that woman about Jesus. When I had such an opportunity. John Wesley said, light yourself on fire and people will come from miles away to watch you burn. That's who I want to be. I want to light myself on fire, his fire. And I want to let people come and see what he's doing in my life, in this body, in my congregation. And I want to be the revival he's called me to be. Right? I want to be a fool for him, 1 Corinthians 4.10. I want to be that fool. That the world can say, that man loves Jesus. That's the abundant life that this church is named after. That's the abundant life Jesus Christ promised in John 10.10, right? Right? A life of adventure, a life of risk-taking and the power of the Holy Spirit, taking steps that nobody else would take, and then saying, God, you have to show up and go big. Otherwise, we're going to look like morons. And then he does show up and go big. He blows your mind in the process. 
And the result isn't that you look any better, but the result is he looks a whole lot better. He's glorified. That's the life that I want to be involved in. Bill Bright put it this way. He says, there are no happy, disobedient Christians, and there are no unhappy, obedient Christians. There are no happy, disobedient Christians. There are no unhappy, obedient Christians. See, as I'm stepping out, I'm going to be experiencing the greatest abundant life that I've ever known. And it's what God has called me to and put me here for. Guys, if you could be on the Super Bowl winning team, let's say the Broncos get there. I'm starting to lose hope. But maybe after, after Thursday, it's kind of trickling back. But let's say the Broncos could be there. And let's say I told you right now, look, you guys, any you guys Broncos fans? No. Uh, you are? Okay. Vaughn the Pastors. Who, who are you fans? Dallas. Dallas. Oh, you guys beat the Raiders Thursday. Oh, that's like... We're going to need to pray for you after service here. But, but if you could be on the winning Super Bowl team, guys, this year, but I told you, man, it's going to take some sacrifice. Okay, Manuel? You ain't going to be sitting on the couch watching TV on Sunday afternoon. You're going to be training in the gym. You're not going to be eating hamburgers. <laughs> You're going to be eating a lot of vegetables and grains to get into that fit place where you can actually be a contributor to winning that ballgame. Are you still going to do it? Would you still do it? Wouldn't you guys want to be a part of something great like that? Gosh, I got to be on the Super Bowl winning team. Well, God's called you to something much greater than that. It's the Super Bowl of eternity, guys. That's what he's called us to. And it's the fourth quarter, and we're at the two-minute warning. And the body of Christ has the opportunity to win the winning touchdown. And God put you in the game just now. He said, Ben, you're in the game. Jesus is the quarterback, and you're the receiver. Are you going to run? Are you going to run? That's what he's calling us to, guys. Am I going to take the challenge? Am I going to step out and be a part of the game? Tom Landry, one of the greatest coaches in NFL history, of the Cowboys. I just have to get on your good side somehow. Uh, um, they asked him, what's an analogy between football and Christianity? You know what he said? It's 22 men on the field in desperate need of rest and 22,000 fans in the stands in desperate need of exercise. That's how he described the church. 22 men on the field in desperate need of rest and 22,000 fans in the stands in desperate need of exercise. See, God's calling us as believers to get out of the stands and on the field. He's saying, I've called you to be on the field right now. And this is the greatest time in the history of the world to be alive. Don't take that for granted, guys. The Apostle Paul, I think, would have flipped out to be able to be alive right now. But God put us here. Right? Sometimes I think God made a big mistake. (laughs) But I want to step out and be who God called me to be. I don't want to live this life and find out that, you know, I'm in heaven and I get to be with God for eternity. That's great. But I don't want to spend all of eternity wondering, what if I would have been sold out on that planet for Christ? Now, I don't want to have regrets for the rest. And he'll wipe away every tear, guys. And it's going to be joyful in heaven. But I want to live this life now. Our director always tells us, you can't share your faith in heaven. <laughs> so do it here. <laughs> Because you can't do it there. And I want to do that. So God doesn't withhold revival. Neither does he bring revival any more than he's already bringing it. He's calling me to catalyze revival. He's calling me to be who he called me to be. To be the revival in the city. How many of you want to see a worldwide sustained and unhindered work of God resulting in true repentance, transforming believers, and saving the lost? You guys there? How many of you guys want to be a part of that? Right? How many of you guys want to be biased towards seeing the opportunities, not seeing the dangers. Okay, now here's, you know, I, want to, I want you to contrast two responses that we can have to this call. One is Moses. 
In Exodus 3, God calls him to something big, probably a lot bigger than he was hoping for, and dangerous, and he probably had some fear. What did Moses say? He says, who am I, God? How many of you believe that? Who am I? God, come on, God, I'm not a big, I'm not a big shot. I'm not Rabbi Zacharias. Right? I'm not Smith Wigglesworth. I'm John Hurst. Okay? How many of you guys have believed that? Just like Moses. Who am I, God? Why would you choose to use me? Who would I say sent me? What if they don't believe me? <laughs> Moses, I love how God is so honest about his followers. I'm not eloquent enough. Please send someone else. Remember, Moses finally got to the point where he's like, gosh, send someone else. And thankfully God used him. But I want to have a different attitude than that. I don't want God to have to drag me into his will. I want to have John the Baptist's attitude where he says, look, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. If he's called me to it, I'm following no Lord is an impossible statement. I'm going to follow him and what he's called me to, realizing I'm not worthy of that. I mean, it's a privilege that he's even called me to co-labor with him. Remember the disciples in uh, Acts 5? where They were overjoyed that they'd been counted worthy to, to face persecution. Gosh, guys, I want, to, I want that part. I want that part. Revival is happening worldwide, and God just put you here strategically. He called us to win the fight in America, in Colorado, and in this town, in Montrose. So let's not let the greatest opportunity in the history of the world to win this entire world for Christ slip through our fingers. That's what's at stake here. Russell Crowe said, what's done in this life echoes for eternity. That was on the movie Gladiator. What's done in this life echoes for eternity. And that could not be truer. What's done in this life truly will echo for eternity. So let's turn this world upside down, just like the disciples did. Let's turn this world upside down, starting today and here. Now, Ephesians 3, 20-21 is what I want to close with. That says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Is that good? He's, he can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can even imagine. But man, I gotta take the initiative to follow him into that battle.